This morning we have a treat also in that Steve is off doing missions, but we have the mission pastor from Grace Church of DuPage, Ray Glinsky, and, and his wife Bobby have joined us today. And uh, I'm going to let him do a little bit of his own introduction. Uh, uh, Grace has been an important part in, in our family's life, uh, but yet uh, I, I don't know um, Ray real well, but I know a few things about him, some of which he wouldn't want me to tell, and, um, and others in which we can. Uh, he plays a golf game in which I'm able to keep up with him, so that's not, that's not too bad. Uh, Ray has, um, uh, has been around the world, and he understands jet lag and um, <clears throat> with his visits to missions as well. One of the things that uh, you may be interested in know, he used to uh, work with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and uh, he's also uh, done some brave things such as uh, he and his wife spent six months in ministry in Iraq, and that was really just a few years ago. I can't remember, two years ago or or something like that. So, um, Ray, if you would come on up and uh, we we will hear your words. Well, good morning. Baini Bosch, that's what they would say, in Kurdistan, uh, up in northern Iraq. And my wife and I did have an opportunity to be there for six months. But let me go back a little bit further. I was born in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Know where that is? Absolutely. Grew up on the south side of Milwaukee for a number of years. That makes me a Packer fan. Can I get a witness? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, but yes, absolutely. Uh, and um, after uh, um, a number of years, we moved down south to the Augusta, Georgia area, where uh, uh, where I met my wife. She's a Southern Belle, born and raised in the Augusta, Georgia area. We have uh, three children, and uh, they're all grown, so we're empty nesters. But our youngest, uh, Karen, is living in the Peoria area. She's a nurse like her mother. Uh, Bobby is, uh, has worked a number of years part-time as a nurse. She's labor and delivery. Um, uh, nurse, she likes happy nursing. She doesn't like sick people. And so she went into nursing. How about that? And, um, but, uh, Karen, our daughter is a nurse down there. Uh, she, uh, got her degree actually at, uh, NIU here. And, uh, that's where she met her husband, Brian. They live in, uh, in the, uh, Peoria area. Our, our middle child, Virginia, is, um, uh, uh, she graduated from Moody Bible Institute. Her and her, her and her husband studied music there. So in their church on the north side of Chicago, they're part of the part of the worship team. And then our our our, our oldest is our son Les, and uh, he is uh, currently in Afghanistan. He is doing his third tour. He did two tours in Iraq, and now he's in Afghanistan. He's right now he's with the 101st Airborne Division. So our son went to Iraq, and we thought we should go and visit him. And that's exactly what we did. So uh, we did have an opportunity through Frontiers Missions to spend six months uh, in Iraq. We were up in the northern part of Iraq amongst the Kurdish people. And uh, we were in the city of Suleimania. And uh, that's where they have uh, probably one of their biggest universities. And a lot of our ministry was there at the University of Suleimania, where we did a lot of English teaching. And uh, with my science background, my master's degree, I don't have an MDiv. Mine's in biochemistry. And uh, so because of my chemistry background and the, the number of times, uh, the number of years I worked in that field, they asked me to teach English to the engineering faculty and staff there at the university. But we also, um, and that was good. I mean, we enjoyed that. It was pretty good. Hanging with college kids. I love college kids. And so, but we also got to teach or to, to do two English camps. 
And uh, so that was a lot of fun, teaching these little Kurdish kids how to play English, um, how to play uh, baseball. It's obviously a new thing for them. You know, the, the, the sports they do overseas, it's all kicking and stuff, and so they don't really throw well. If you've ever been overseas and played uh, with, with, uh, with people overseas, they're great with their feet, but their hands not so much. And uh, so it was a great opportunity to just teach these kids, uh, uh, two different sets of kids for a couple of weeks, how to, how to play some baseball. Let me commend you uh, for uh, sending uh, uh, your pastor overseas to do missions work and to be involved in leadership development. That's a great, uh, great um, request that, that those around the world have. They really are asking for uh, guys to come over, guys with experience in ministry to come over and help them um, uh, just uh, be better shepherds. And so I just commend you for that opportunity that you guys have jumped on in that regard. Um, this morning, um, we are going to look at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope I hit all the points that are there in the in the uh, in the kids' notes. Um, so, um, kids, follow along, and if you know, if I don't, just let me know or something like that. But but we do want to take a look this morning at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I hope this is going to be an encouragement uh, for you this morning to look at this, um, because um, certainly, you know, as we as we think about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that went on uh, uh, during his life, there are a number of, of what we might call landmark events, a number of things that he did uh, that certainly pointed to the fact that he is God the Son. He is God's anointed, God incarnate. He is the promised Messiah. He is indeed the Lamb of God. And so as we think about it, certainly we're coming into the uh, holiday season here, so we certainly remember his virgin birth as a, is certainly an indication and a proof of his, of his deity, of who he is and what he came to do. His baptism uh, would be part of that. His temptation in the wilderness would be another one. The myriad of miracles that he did uh, while he was conducting his ministry his transfiguration on the mount there when, 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 when the three apostles were there and uh, you know, seeing Moses and Elijah and then the Lord Jesus Christ transformed before them and their desire was to just stay on the mountain. Let's just stay on the mountain. His crucifixion also pointed to that. We know that the centurion, after Christ had died, said certainly this was a son of God. And then obviously his resurrection all of these events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ point to the fact that He is indeed God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is the one who came to fulfill the ministry that, that the Father had planned for Him to do, the, to be the mediator and to accomplish God's plan of redemption and reconciliation. So, when people question the deity of Christ, I'm like, yeah, how do you do that? I mean, how do you do that with everything that he did, with everything that he taught, with how the, you know, with, with the impact that he's had? How do you, how do you wonder about that? And on top of all of these things, I think what we're going to see this morning is that the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ clearly communicates gospel truth about who he is and the work that he came to do. Now, before we jump into this, let's just ask ourselves uh, just a couple of questions here. And that is, how would you expect God the Son to leave planet Earth? I mean, I, how is He going to do that? What would, be, what would be the way to do that? What, what, what means of His departure would be the best complement to His resurrection? And, 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 and what means of His departure would really complete His earthly ministry in a way that His disciples would believe and persevere? 
I, would he just dissolve before them? Would he simply vanish from their sight as he had on a couple of a pre- previous occasions? Maybe some kind of a Star Trek transporter? Would he walk off or ride off? A la Clint Eastwood, the Lone Ranger, you know, Pale Rider, just riding off into the sunset, never to be seen again. People asking, who was that masked man? I mean, how do you put an exclamation point on all that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. How do you do that? And the answer by God's wisdom is simply this. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. That's how you do it. And I think that's what we're going to see this morning. So if you would please, um, in your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. In the Luke chapter 24, we're going to look at, we're going to read two, uh, passages from scripture, very, uh, very much related, both hitting on the topic, uh, of the event of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And both written by the same man, both written by Luke. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 24 to catch a little bit of the context. We're going to start in verse 44, where he says, And then he said to them, he being Jesus Christ, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. And so there we see the account in Luke's Gospel. But turn, if you would please, over to Acts chapter 1. Over to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to uh, again see another account of this, another um, means by which Paul, uh, by which Luke is, is, is um, writing this truth to us. And uh, we're going to pick it up in, in uh, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And so here we see the two accounts, uh, the two primary accounts in Scripture where it talks about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at the four things this morning. I think you have them probably in some notes. We're going to look at the prospect, the process, the purposes, and the prominence in regards to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're going to look at is the prospect. Was there anything that was done or said ahead of time that was like a clue to the apostles that this was going to happen? I mean, did this like catch them like way off guard? Or was there any advance notice that his departure was going to be out of the ordinary? Well, in John chapter 14, in John chapter 14, in verses 28 and 29, Christ, in speaking to his disciples, said, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Now, Jesus Christ is telling us right here in John chapter 14 that the, the way in which He is going to leave is going to be a means by which it's going to build their faith. It is going to be something that they could look back on and, and, and just realize, wow, He really is who He said He was. He really is God the Son. I mean, I mean, so that, like Jesus said, so that before it takes, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He is going to leave in a manner that will cause them to believe that He is indeed God's Son. And, and, and He talked there in, in John 14 about the fact that I'm going to the Father. By the way, where is the Father? In heaven. Where's heaven? Up. So there's nothing blatant here, but there certainly is an indication that he's going up to the Father in a way that's unusual. Jesus also was more direct when he was talking to Mary uh, after he had risen from the dead in John chapter 20 and verse 17. Uh, Mary had... um, held on to him once she realized who he was, that he wasn't the gardener, that he was indeed the risen Lord. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Ah, a little bit more direct there. He's telling Mary Magdalene, Listen, you go tell those guys, you go tell the followers, you go tell your brothers, I am going to be ascending to the Father. My Father and your Father, my God, your God. A little bit more direct. My guess is Mary Magdalene was faithful to do that which God had called her to do. She went and back and told these guys, He's going at some point in time to be ascending into heaven. So that's the prospect. They had a little bit of, a, they had a little bit of an inkling there. There was a little something there to tell them that, yeah, something like this was going to happen. Now, what's the process? Exactly how did it happen? When in Luke 24 that we read earlier, it says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up. But here in Acts chapter 1, where we presently are, it says, As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
a fairly simple process, is it not? I mean, he's there, talking, and all of a sudden, just begins to be carried up, carried away, levitating, so to speak, just and, and going up and up and up and up until he's up into the clouds. And then, as, as it says, a cloud covers him and, and kind of takes him away. So just simple, simple process. Certainly nothing like we've seen other people ascend into heaven. Can you think of somebody in the Old Testament that ascended into heaven? Yes, sir? Mm, I'm not thinking of Isaiah. Elijah, exactly. And how did Elijah ascend into heaven? Absolutely. Fiery chariot. That's what I want to do. I want the fiery chariot. Come on, let's put a little pizzazz in this thing. But no, there's no fiery chariot. Just simply being lifted up into heaven till he gets up to the clouds. And then the clouds seem to kind of just carry him away. Very simple process. But no doubt, as you're watching this, as they're watching this, you've got to be amazed, right? You've got to be saying, like, what is going on here? And so there's, even, in its, even, even though it's a very simple process, there's, it's, it's a majestic thing that's going on, isn't it? Uh, how many people can do that? And so, so again, he's departing in a way that's just going to strengthen their faith and just cause them to believe and cause them to persevere. And, and, and you know, not only that involved in the, not only is that part of the process, but also part of the process is the fact that his ascension is attended by angels in, in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 there in verse 10. And while they're gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? So just as we saw at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we saw at his resurrection, here at his ascension, here we have two angels coming alongside these men of Galilee. Now, there's no telling how long these guys were gazing up into heaven. Put yourself in their place. How long would you be there gazing up into heaven? You'd probably be there for a while, wouldn't you? I mean, you probably just wouldn't throw a couple of rocks and walk away or kick a few stones. and No, you'd, be, you'd probably be there, who knows, 15, 20, 30 minutes. I mean, you know, like you're in Chicago and you're looking at all those tall buildings. You're like, wow. I mean, you just, you're just there. You're amazed. You're awestruck. The, the majesty of the moment. I mean, you're just, you're just enraptured in what was going on and they're just looking up, looking up, looking up. In fact, some commentators believe that they were looking up because they really thought he was immediately going to come back down again with all of his angels and they were going to usher in the kingdom. Hadn't they asked that before? Lord, is it now? Look in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So something that they thought he was just going to come right back down again with his angels, vanquish the foes, set up the kingdom. Here we go. So they were there apparently for some length of time, just just looking up and lingering there and probably trying to understand and, and, and put it in context. What did we just see? What just went on here? And so they were probably there for a good long while in this in this 
combination. I think of, you know, on the one hand, there's this like fixated joy that, that you're just experiencing. But on the other hand, there's just some level of puzzlement. And so here they are just looking up and finally these angels come along and they explain to them what had just happened and what they are now supposed to do in response to what they've just seen. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So kind of puts it into context. This is what's going on. So that's the process, a very simple process. And by the way, just as a side note, this took place at Bethany, or as it says here on the, uh, on, on the Mount of Olives. This is where Christ began his triumphal, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The, the same place that he started his triumphal entry is the same place from which he starts his triumphal exit. Yeah, you got to get an E in there, see? Triumphal entry, triumphal exit. That's how it works. It's okay. It's okay. I was fishing for a word. Okay. Now, so so now we've seen the the, the prospect and process. Look, let's look at the purposes. What are the purposes for his ascension and the purposes for where Jesus Christ is at today? Because he has ascended and he has today and he is today seated at the right hand of the Father. What are the purposes for Jesus Christ returning back to the Father at the time and in the way that he returned? In John chapter fourteen, verses two and three, very familiar um, uh, passage of Scripture where Jesus says, "Let not your hearts be troubled." Believe Believe in God, believe also in me. And again, as we've seen, his, his ascension into heaven is going to be a means by which they, they can and they will believe in him. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And that I go to prepare a, would I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This, this is one of the purposes for Christ uh, ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father. He is even now today preparing a place for us. And since He is preparing a place for us, He will what? Return again and take us up to Him. So that's one of the purposes. Another purpose that we see in Scripture is, as we've said before, is so that they would believe out of John 14, 28 and 20 and 29. He says, I'm going away and I will come to you. And if, uh, uh, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven in, in large part so His disciples would believe. Because, if you recall from Scripture, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, some of His disciples doubted, didn't they? And at one point in time, in the Gospel of Luke, as His disciples are there seeing Him, He appears in their midst. They're obviously a little flustered by that whole thing. Who wouldn't be? But it says some doubted. And so what did Jesus Christ ask at that point in time? Remember that? Give me some fish. And he ate fish in front of them to prove that he was physically there in their presence. After Jesus Christ rose from the dead, some of his closest disciples doubted. But after the ascension, we don't see any doubts. Nobody's doubting nothing at this point in time. 
Everybody's on board. Everybody believes. Everybody's committed. So that's another reason. That's another purpose, so that they would believe. Another purpose for Christ returning to the Father, as He did, so that He would send the Holy Spirit to convict the sinners. In John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus Christ returns to the Father's side in order to send the Holy Spirit of God. And it is the Holy Spirit of God that Jesus says here will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they fail to believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the sin with, uh, for which the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of his unbelief. But also, the Holy Spirit convinces them that Jesus Christ is indeed the righteous one, as he says. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. If Jesus Christ is not the righteous one, then He does not ascend back to the Father. But the fact that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven proves that He is indeed righteous. And even Peter, in Acts chapter 3, when he was preaching one of his sermons, when he was when, when, uh, uh, con- convicted, basically, those who had rejected Christ, he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So by the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, by the fact that He ascended into heaven, it proves that He is indeed God's righteous one. And the Holy Spirit will convince people of that. He will, he will convince the unbelievers of the beauty of Christ, of the righteousness of Christ, of who He is. And then he says concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The fact is, is that Satan has been judged already. Satan has been defeated by the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is the issue that we have to present to the unbelievers. People either, now this is what it really boils down to. People either place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they, and they trust His promises that Jesus made to His followers, and Jesus said, by the way, there's a day that's going to come, and I'm going to call all out of their graves. Remember that? I'm going to call everybody out of their graves. And to some there's going to be a resurrection of life, And for others, there's going to be a resurrection of condemnation. And Jesus promised to bring all of His followers into heaven where He is right now. He went there to prepare a place for us, and that's what He's going to do. For those who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and trust in His promises for salvation, they have done the complete opposite. They have rejected Christ. They have ignored the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, believe it or not, they place their allegiance in Satan. Now, most unbelievers will flatly deny, I'm not loyal to Satan. I am not. I am not. 
How dare you say such a thing about me? You know, I, I, you know, for me personally, I get on this site that's called xchristians.net. Okay? There are a lot of angry, bitter people in this world. <laughs> and a lot of them are on that site. And I get on there and I'm communicating the gospel with these people. And, and I tell them, you're following after Satan. Oh, I'm not following after Satan. How dare you say that? You don't know me at all. You don't blah, 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 blah. Listen, I don't have to know your, every detail of your life story to know what you're doing. All I know is this. You either follow Jesus Christ into heaven or you will follow, or you will follow Satan into hell. That's it. Those are the two options. There's no middle ground anywhere. And that's why it's so imperative for us as believers to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel and to alert people to the fact that this is indeed what they are doing. You don't follow Christ, you're following Satan. That's it. There are no other options. There are none. And that's, Jesus said, if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit and He will convict the world of that. Of sin because they don't believe in Me. Of righteousness because I'm the righteous one because I went back to the Father. And of judgment because the God of this world, Satan, has been judged. And so either we follow, it, either we experience salvation and we follow Jesus, Jesus into heaven, or we experience condemnation and we follow Satan into hell. That's it. And that's one of the purposes that Jesus had in returning to heaven in the way that he returned. And again, Peter likened, Peter likened remember what Peter said? You had the chance. You had the chance to free Jesus. And what did you choose? And who did they choose? Barabbas! Listen, that's just a microcosm of what happens on planet Earth. You either choose Jesus or you choose a murderer. That's it. That, that, is, that is why unbelief is such a grievous sin. You know, people say, oh, you, know, you mean I'm going to hell just because I don't believe in your Jesus? Yeah. Do you realize how grievous a sin that is? Do you realize who Jesus is? What He did? What He accomplished? What He went through? For rebellious, wicked sinners like us? And you're just going to blow that off? And you think that's nothing? <laughs> Listen, unbelief is a grievous, grievous sin. It really is. And the Holy Spirit of God thankfully convicts people of that, but He uses us as we preach the gospel, doesn't He? As we share the gospel in our neighborhoods with our extended family, with our friends, all of those kind of things. Well, Jesus is now at the Father's right hand. Jesus is now at the Father's right hand. If you would, please turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is now at the Father's right hand. In chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there He is today. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And what is He doing? What is He doing? Already we've seen that He went to prepare a place for us. But please turn over a few more pages to Hebrews chapter 7. To Hebrews chapter 7. And we can see what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing as He is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in service. But he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus Christ today, seated at the right hand of the Father, is praying for you. Is praying for me. Do you find that a comforting thought? Do you find that an encouraging thought? I mean, tomorrow when, you know, just your world gets turned upside down to some degree, can you reflect back on the fact that, you know what? Uh, This is lousy. I hate this. But, Jesus Christ Himself is praying for me. Because that's one of his purposes for returning to the Father as he did. He intercedes for the saints. You can see the same truth in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. But finally, if you would just look over again in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Not only is the Lord Jesus Christ praying for us, but also, as it says here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, since then. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Right? He passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I so appreciated this morning the emphasis on God's grace in all of the songs that we sang. Because it is indeed God's grace by which we are saved. Amen. It is indeed by God's grace that we're taking our next breath. It is indeed by the grace of God that we're going to wake up tomorrow and fix breakfast after we brush our teeth and have our coffee, all right, and get dressed. I mean, it is by the grace of God that we live on a daily basis. So we we just got to make sure that we don't relegate God's grace to our salvation and that somehow after that we're just going to make this thing happen. It is by the grace of God that we're able to do anything that God calls us to do, even the most mundane and routine things in life. So even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, and it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. That whole Popeye thing. But Paul didn't do it with spinach. He said, and I worked harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And so here we have a high priest who lived on this planet who suffered, who died, who rose from the dead, and who passed through the heavens as he ascended up to be at the Father's right hand. And even now, he is at the throne of grace that we can go confidently to and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord Jesus Christ helps us with our temptations, with our trials. And we should be quick to go to Him because He's been through many of the things that we've been through and understands and empathizes and sympathizes with where we are and what's going on and He will answer and deliver His people.
Well, the last thing we want to look at in regards to the purposes, what was the purpose in His ascending into heaven? And that's, of course, covered in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, where the angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him going into heaven. His, his, his ascension into heaven is a precursor for His return, His second coming to the planet earth to restore all things. As they said, He will come in the same way as you saw Him going up into heaven. So even as the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, so when He returns at the time established by the Father, He will return from heaven in that same way. And again, Peter, in preaching to the people in Acts chapter 3, talked about, told the people to repent and that, the, and that the times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke. So Christ is in heaven until that time established by the Father in which He will restore all things. And at that point in time, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself will return. So that's the final purpose that we want to look at. It's a precursor to how he's going to return. So the last thing that we're going to see this morning is the prominence. What kind of, the ascension of the Lord Jesus, I mean, what should that mean to us? I mean, how do, how do we respond to this? How do we, how do we live this out? What does it mean? What kind of level of importance should we, should we place on this? Well, I think we need to give it a high level of prominence. I think we need to consider it on something of a regular basis because the Lord Jesus Christ did this in order that we might believe and, and to, uh, to build us up in our faith. But if you would please turn over to um, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, just a really interesting um, um, uh, verse here um, uh, that Paul lays out. And obviously, here's Paul talking to a young pastor about things that need to happen in the life of their church. Oops. And uh, he says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, the mystery of godliness. Who is God and what is He doing? And by the way, let's admit that God in many ways is mysterious. That's not a bad thing. Okay, not a bad thing. Sometimes we don't like mystery. It gets a little spooky. Okay, we, you know, we just, don't we want to fully understand everything? Don't we just want to be able to map it out and just, you know, have an out, you know, have our three point outline and, you know, you know, kind of, I mean, we, we, you, when it comes to God, you can't. In fact, if God was not a mystery to you, what would that mean? Not much of a God, is he? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're sitting there watching Law and Order. Right? Halfway through the program, you figured out who did it and how they did it? Come on. How bright are those writers? They can't outfox me. If, you, if God is not some kind of mystery to you, He's not much of a God. Is He? No! So there's nothing wrong with God being... Hey, my wife is a mystery. Right? Your husband is a mystery. Your children are a mystery. And especially when they get teenagers, they're a big mystery. When they hit 17, oh man. For us, that was the what were you thinking age. 17. Model citizens up till then, but 17? Wow. What was, what's blocking your synapses from connecting and working? <laughs> Just a mystery. Listen, if human beings are a mystery to us, the human beings that are closest to us remain a mystery after 34 years, whatever. 
Why do we not think that God, the God of the universe, infinite, is going to be in some ways mysterious? We can't figure Him out. He's beyond our understanding. He's incomprehensible. That's a good thing. It shows that He's God. I'm sorry, I digress. First Peter chapter, I mean, First Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. God came in the flesh, took on human nature, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, many believe that this was an early creed. Or it, was a, or it was a hymn in the life of the early church. So they, they made sure that the ascension of Christ was part of what they recited together as the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ was taken up in glory. It should have that same level of prominence in our own lives and in our own faith. The fact of the matter is, is that Christ is today seated in the rightful throne as Lord and ruler over all. He ascended into the, at the Father's right hand. He ascended into heaven um, in the front of many, many eyewitnesses. And so now, as Peter says, He has gone into heaven. He is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. He sits today as King of kings and Lord of lords at the Father's right hand. Now, what do we do with this? What's the personal application? We've looked at the prospect. We've looked at the process. We looked at the purposes. We looked at the prominence. And now we look at the personal application. What do I do with this? What do I do? Well, I actually, I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I don't think our application is any different than what the angels called upon <laughs> those guys standing around looking up into heaven doing. I mean, given the fact that Jesus Christ has defeated Satan, he's ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's exalted above all rule, power, dominion, authority, and above every other name, ruling his Lord over all. I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, certainly we look around the world, and we had an, we had an example even in our prayer time today. We look around the world, and we have to admit, does it look like God's reigning? Sometimes you look and well, nah, not so much. All the wars going on? The abortion issue is what we talked about this morning? I mean, just the rampant degradation that our society seems to be running headlong into? Where's the rain? Where's the rule? Where's it at? What's going on? We just, don't you wonder about these things sometimes? How's this all going to come about? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that God is at work. And God's work, believe it or not, God's work is a slow work. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we're talking before. How many years does it take to raise a kid? I think it's 25 now. And quickly approaching 30. And it takes 25 years to raise a kid. Do you see anywhere in Scripture where God is in a hurry? I don't see it. Even in creation, we could say, well, it took him, he did it in six days. That's kind of fast to come up with the whole universe. Well, I'll grant you that. But he could have done it in six hours, couldn't he? He could have done it in six minutes. Six microseconds. I don't think he was in a hurry. In fact, the only time I see God anywhere in a hurry in Scripture is when they built the wall, Nehemiah. They did that in 49 days. And everybody was amazed, right? Whoa, 49 days. They rebuilt the wall. God must be in it. 
There was a reason that God was in a hurry at that point in time. But really, for the most part, God is not in a hurry. I mean, we've been kicking this, we've been kicking human history around for how many years? 6,000 are we up to? 7,000? And even Jesus, He promised to return. How long ago was that? Well, there's a reason that God doesn't end it all, isn't there? Peter talks about this. We are to regard the patience of God. We are to regard God's slowness. I gave it away. Man, I got to learn that. All right. <laughs> well, we'll check your short-term memory. All right. <laughs> we are to regard the slowness of God as His patience. Every day that Jesus does not return is another day that somebody can hear the gospel and get saved. It is by the mercy of God that He does not return today so that others may hear the gospel, even in Nepal, and come to saving faith in Christ. God is not in a hurry. And God got His work slowly throughout time. And I think that same thing is here now. And I think we're kind of, we're kind of, like, we're kind of like these guys right here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I think we're just kind of like these guys. We're sitting around hoping that the return of Christ will be now. Um, or at least near, right? And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, what does it say in Scripture? Maranatha, right? And that means what? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We certainly are to look for that, and we're supposed to eagerly await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But until that time, see, they, they were just kind of fixated on that. But Christ's response to them is, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons as the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. I think that's what we need to be involved in. At the end of Matthew, chap- at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28, what does the Lord Jesus Christ tell them? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In the, at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. And here we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, we're not to, we're not to be overly concerned about these times. God has a fixed plan by which He is going to return and He is going to restore all things. Until that point in time, we are to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, because the Lord Jesus Christ is, as we said before, He is the only means of salvation. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. Either in the life to come, certainly, but even in this life, the blessings of God that come upon those who know Him are just innumerable. And so... What does the ascension prove? It proves that the cross was enough to save us and we ought to rejoice in that. It proves that our Savior is in heaven and we should rest in that truth. We certainly know that the Spirit resides within us and we should rely on that truth. And finally, the Great Commission. The Great Commission is worthy of a full-on pursuit. And we ought to run towards that truth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that God the Son came, took on, took on human nature, lived, died, rose, and ascended into heaven, all in order to 
accomplish your glory in the salvation of rebellious sinners. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we enjoy. And Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us. And Lord, we ask for boldness. We ask for wisdom. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would equip us and move us, that we would go forth from here and, and just be avid in our witness and just be eager even as Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Lord, make us eager in our evangelism. And Lord God, use us to further the kingdom, to advance your gospel. And all these things we pray in Christ's name.